Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad, so enjoy the show! Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hi, everybody. I'm Eric Arnault, and this is the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast with part two of our second annual team-up with International Tom Hanks Day, appropriately themed Catch Me If You Can this year. On this episode, you'll hear from Tom Hanks Day founder Kevin Turk, plus fans and storytellers Katie Johnston-Smith, Mike Josie, and Chels Harvey, and you'll get music from myself, Katie, and Dwight Hassler. Friends, don't forget that International Tom Hanks Day is this Saturday, April 1st, at noon at Lincoln Hall in Chicago, and it's going to be a great time. If you'd like more information on the day's festivities, check out thetomhanksday.com. Also, I plugged this on the live segment of last week's episode, but this Wednesday, March 29th, I'm bringing back my weird and fun one-man Bruce Springsteen tribute, uh, this time with some friends, for a one-night-only show at the Beat Kitchen as a fundraiser for the ACLU. It's going to be a blast. Tickets are $10 at the door, and literally all of that money goes to a great cause. Uh, festivities start at 8, and I'd love to see you there. Uh, there's also another cool non-podcast Nerdalogs announcement coming in the next couple of weeks, so make sure you keep watching our website, which is nerdalogs.com, and our Facebook page, facebook.com slash nerdalogs, uh, as well as this podcast for more info on that. It is very exciting, I tell you what. Uh, I can't really say what it is yet, but it's going to be cool. I think you'll like it a lot. As always... Thanks for listening to our show. Uh, If you like us, you can rate and review us on iTunes or support us on Patreon. Those both help a ton, and we appreciate you very much. But, I mean, hey, we appreciate you either way. So let's get to the show. We're going to start the second half with a medley of songs that I've wanted to do for a long, long time. These are both songs about being a runaway, and they kind of go together, but they're from about 30 years apart, and like 20 years apart in the timeline. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's what I want to say about that. Yeah. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. 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 How you guys feeling? Woo! It's me, Chicago! Chicago, how you feeling? (laughs) I'm really good at this. One time I saw Kiss... 
and Paul Stanley was introducing Detroit Rock City and he goes, this is a song about the city that knows how to rock hardest in all the world, but just because it's not about your city doesn't mean that Chicago doesn't rock. This one's called Detroit Rock City. So anyway, this is Detroit Rock City. No. <laughs> One, two, three, four. As I walk alone, I wonder what went wrong with our love, a love that was so strong. And as I still walk on, I think of the things we've done together while our hearts were young. I'm walking in the rain, tears are falling in. She's a little runaway 
everybody. Oh my god. Here's my Bon Jovi fun fact. Can I you guys, past you can. Me? You guys already know. I uh, I know a little bit too much about Bruce Springsteen. So the E Street Band's Roy Bitten is the original keyboard player on that song. Because uh, Johnny didn't have a band when he recorded that song, he submitted it to like a radio contest, and I think what he won from it was studio time, and that's where the first Bon Jovi record came from. So we can thank thank Roy Bitten for that sick ass uh, keyboard part. <laughs> also, the keyboard player on uh, "I Do Anything for Love," but I won't do that. That's true. Do you need this? No, I do not need this. Oh yeah, I do need this. Thank you. Dwight knows better than I do. You should this introduce one, right? this song, Dwight. Oh. Uh, this is a bad religion song. This is a song they hate because it was on an album they hate because it's not punk rock at all. <laughs> it kind of and so much so that they broke up because of it. And then they they got back together after that, obviously, because it's been years. But, uh, <laughs> it sounds like a Greg Graffin solo song, which is like kind of the direction we took it. It's called uh, Chasing the Wild Goose. Yeah. Uh, you want to give me the tempo? that much like that's pretty close to what it sounded like on the record and then they got back together and I mean like generator and shit that was actually punk anyway so we got four more storytellers this evening one of whom you've seen on stage already I mentioned that she has an let's just be real unhealthy love of Tom Hanks and uh, that is she's also why we're here tonight so thank you so much for helping put this together Katie Johnston Smith 
It's not unhealthy because I have not legitimately stalked him, so fuck yourself, Eric. <laughs> Okay. Have you illegitimately stalked? Yes. <laughs> cool. Hi, I'm Katie. Uh, I've already been up here. Um, um, yeah, great. Uh, and I love Tom Hanks, but this is not a story about Tom Hanks. I'm very sorry. I'm very, very sorry. No, I'm not. Uh, I'm not, nor have I ever been an athletic person. Thinness and muscle mass are only a value for purely vain reasons. Vanity is the only reason I exercise, and it has been since ninth grade. <laughs> In eighth grade, I was chubby. Uh, I had braces, I had an acorn-shaped haircut, and I only wore knockoff umbros and concert t-shirts from the many times I had seen Christian contemporary music artist Rebecca St. James live. Uh, my, my eighth grade crush Steve Shaw is in the audience tonight, and he can tell you why he did not requite my love. It's because I looked like that. <laughs> Sorry, Steve. Okay. Um, I tried sports here and there, but usually got cut from any sort of serious athletic endeavor because I was bad. So when I discovered that my high school's cross-country team cut no one, I was thrilled, and I signed up immediately. It came as no shock to me that... Um, I was also not great at running, as I was one of the three worst people on the team. But, but, uh, running provided benefits that stretched far beyond meddling in 3.1 mile races through the open fields of western Pennsylvania and sometimes Ohio. The real prize for running as much as I did was the fact that I could beast pizza rolls and donuts at lunch with no effing consequences. Baby! Yeah. <laughs> Since the benefits, vanity, and actually feeling pretty good after practice far outweighed, no pun intended, the drawbacks, I ran cross-country until the first few weeks of my senior year when I was cast as Charlotte in my school's production of Charlotte's Web, which Steve was also in! <laughs> uh, you guys saw it too? He was great. He was great. Um, cool. Rehearsals directly conflicted with cross-country practice, so my very sweet coach, Mr. Schreiner, gently suggested that I focus on the play and drop from the Mount Lebanon cross-country junior varsity roster. I was a little sad, but mostly not, for I was to be a star. And I mean... I'm, I mean, not really. I wasn't a star. Uh, but after one of uh, the cross-country kids' moms saw me as Charlotte, she asked my mom why I even ran cross-country in the first place. My mom replied, to keep herself humble. <laughs> but she didn't also know that it was to keep myself thin. Thank you! <laughs> Thank you, Katie. The very humble... So talented, Katie Jones. I was talking to Steve out in the lobby, and he was like, this isn't the first Your Story show that I've been to. So I like that you specifically called him out as someone who, uh, you know, spurned your love. I'm sure that makes him feel very welcome. Hi, Steve. <laughs> anyway, that was great. Thank you, Katie. What? <laughs> I was thanking you. Okay.
coming next to the stage, we have, uh, I believe this is his third time at the show. He's told some awesome stories here about having dreams about malls. That was one of my favorites of all time. Uh, he is a, a huge R.E.M. fan, which is something I discovered after his first story, which I love about him, so I'm always going to mention it. He is a designer, works at Designation, also a great dude. This is Mike Josie. It's like the room inside the room inside the room. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> okay. Uh, hi, I'm Mike. I am an airline nerd. Um, that's not an airplane nerd. They are two different things. Uh, I don't care about the mechanics of planes. Uh, the fact that they fly is like incredible. Um, but I never wanted to be an engineer or anything. Uh, and it's not how they look. They look like giant penises. That's fantastic. Um, I was always excited by the branding on airlines, um, and especially their logos. And I think that must have been one of the reasons why I kind of got into design, graphic design in the first place. Um, but at the time, when I was a kid, it was like this thrill of something I didn't have the language to describe yet. Uh, so I lived the first few years of my life in a town called El Paso, if you've heard of it. It is thoroughly unremarkable. Um, and it's thoroughly unremarkable airport. I went to a few times. Um, it's almost hard to remember now, but before 2001, you could actually go through a really short security line and go right up to the gate uh, of an airport, an airport. And there was no reason not to because that brought me closer to the airplanes and their logos. Um, so, uh, like I said, the airport was really unremarkable. It was just a crappy place, except for a glass display case that was in the center of the main hallway. Uh, and you had to walk past that to get to all the gates and everything. Um, and it, it, I remember it so clearly because it had like 10 or 12 perfectly constructed uh, models of, uh, of different miniature airplanes. Um, and they all had different logos on their tails and on their bodies. Um, and they were all pointing up like they were, you know, in mid takeoff. And they were on little plastic stands. And everybody else just walked past it, I remember, all the time. Um, but I loved that glass case. I loved it so much. I always wanted to go to it and stop at it and just like gawk at it for a long time. Um, it was like it was waiting there for me every time. And if you'd offered me the choice between uh, living in a house with a bed and meals um, or living next to that display case, it would have been really tough as a kid. Um, and that would have been a hard life because I'm a really nervous pooer at airports. So anyway, glad we didn't do that. So one of the planes that I really, really loved the most was uh, the logo uh, for Pan Am. And Pan Am's logo, if you guys can picture it, was a globe. And it was white outlines on a blue uh, globe background. Um, it was and still is, in my opinion, one of the only airline logos to really get that capital R romanticism of flight. Uh, you can envision it traveling uh, on that globe um, and seeing pretty much anything that was worth seeing in the world. Um, it feels like it really turned airline logos from two-dimensional to three-dimensional, uh, which when it was created in the 40s was exactly what you needed, or uh, what, what airplanes needed to get people to actually leave the ground. Um, and the funny part is that the El Paso airport didn't even have Pan Am. Um, they just wanted to be like in the same orbit of the idea of Pan Am. <laughs> and I understood that desire. Um, Pan Am used a slogan in the 80s uh, for their advertising that was, uh, every country has an airline, the world has Pan Am. Which for me was like not impossible not to fall in love with. Pan Am was something like that. Um, I, as a kid, I also had a little tin with a bunch of airline wings in it. You guys, did you guys get airplane wings? Yeah. Little things. Uh, they are like plastic uh, pins with the airline logo on them. Uh, they're like a replica of what pilots wear, except they're made in an even cheaper sweatshop. <laughs> um, you get them if you go on flights and like your parents walk you up to the cockpit and say, can my child see the cockpit? That was back when they let you in the cockpit. 
Um, or, you know, ask them from like a flight attendant or somebody. Um, and I would like get all these tins. I would just hoard them and I'd ask people to send me their, their wings that they would get, you know, any family members or whoever. And I would empty that tin out on my bed um, all the time and I would just pour through those wings. Um, and I'd line them up in rows and I'd find new ways to organize them. I'd have like a, a cool logo off. Um, but I never got Pan Am wings. Um, and I never flew in one. And I don't think anybody that I knew at the time had ever flown in one either because it was a luxury. It was something out of reach. And so all those, those wings from Continental and Eastern and Northwestern, all those airlines never quite had the same luster. Um, so since then, the fate of airlines is something that I've been really, uh, drawn to more and more over the years. Um, they rise and fall like in every other industry. Some show up out of nowhere and they claw for attention. Um, some get merged out of existence. Uh, that last one happens a lot uh, because and it's a little too much for my comfort. Uh, the fact that airlines sort of disappear one day and all of a sudden they're replaced by something else. Um, we only have four major airlines left in the United States, and that's uh, American, United, Delta, and Southwest. Um, because they're what's left, they kind of get to do shitty things like raise prices for no reason, set extraneous charges, and take away each perk one by one. I'm pretty sure the budget for the plastic wings is always the first to go. <laughs> uh, and for my money, Virgin and JetBlue feel like the only ones today that truly care about giving people an experience as passengers. Um, but Virgin's about to be swallowed up by Alaska Air, which, by the way, has a really shitty logo. Um, I still want all these airlines to succeed because uh, I believe in a great flying experience. I believe that that's something to really look up to. Um, but that's kind of hard to really happen, uh, have happen anymore. Um, Pan Am survived until 1991 as an airline. Uh, it kind of sucks that it's only really today a fashion brand. Uh, you see it on t-shirts and handbags like NASA and Che Guevara. Um, <laughs> it's really become a symbol that's detached from any real context. So I get why Catch Me If You Can idealizes Pan Am because it was really uh, worthy of being idealized. There was sex appeal and good business and imagination and American skill all rolled into one. And there really is another brand that can match it, except for Tom Hanks. <laughs> Every country has an actor. The world has Tom Hanks. <laughs> uh, I uh, came along at the end of the golden age of flight. You know, I was born in 1980. Um, and that was really the start of the technology age. You know, I remember when personal computers came along and laptops and everything. And no question, it is a lot easier today to do almost everything. Um, in those 30-some years, we, I think, have all signed up for a big fundamental shift together. And that shift is from the question, how can I get myself to that adventure, to how can I bring that adventure to me? We chose convenience, and I'm not going to be the guy who says that's better or worse than, than anything. It's just different, and it makes me nostalgic, but not regretful. Um, when you're a kid, you get to dream about this world being this other place uh, that's going to be full of adventure. And if there's something you can see that can take you there, it's a really big deal. No matter what you do for the rest of your life, you'll still hold on to that sense of wonder and adventure. The thing will hold meaning for you alone long after the rest of the world stop paying attention. And even as adults, we don't just want to see a thing, we want to imagine the experience around it. So that's what it means to be a nerd, to have something that unlocks that pleasure center of your brain uh, to allow us to bring some small piece of adventure to our lives. It's kept in a glass case waiting for us to visit any time. So uh, thanks for letting me be an airplane nerd, an airline nerd tonight. <laughs> Uh, if anybody has a line on some sweet Pan Am wings, please hit me up. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Mike Josie. Yeah. I swear, 
I swear, even before you brought it up, I was going to mention the Alaska Air logo and how exceptionally shitty it is. Because anytime I go to Seattle, I fly Southwest and they share a terminal with Alaska Air. I'm like, who is the dude on the side of their planes? He's creepy looking and scares me. I would never fly Alaska Air. They have like a mean, like, fucking, like, Zordon, but with hair face on the side of their plane. It's not good. It's not good. I wouldn't do it. Anyway, guys, coming, that this is Eric's airplane opinion. I'll, I'll save the segment for the for post-production. I'll give you more details. <laughs> Coming next to the stage, we have a short story writer currently working on a graphic novel. That is super cool. I, I love comics, so this is especially close to my heart. Please welcome Chels Harvey. So I should also uh, mention that the reason that I'm here, that I was invited, and I'm going to out you a little bit what? here, is that um, I used to work at Myopic Books. Are any of you guys familiar with Myopic? Okay, cool. Very awesome place. Love it very much. Still care very deeply for it. Um, but I was working at Myopic, and I have to say that um, Katie and her husband were the only people to ever come into Myopic drunk who didn't piss me off. <laughs> so that's why I'm here. Um, I met I met Katie uh, and her husband while they were looking for a book um, on one of your birthdays? It was his birthday. His birthday. Yeah. That's what I thought. Okay. Um, yeah, and then it just, you guys were such a such a joy. <laughs> um, and so that's how I found out about the Nerdalogs, and um, I've never actually read a story before. So um, please be gentle and kind to me. Yeah. Okay, that's like not gentle. That's like very aggro, but I meant to. Okay. Um, so by the time that my family figured out that our home was infested by cockroaches, it was absolutely too late. Um, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, which is the kind of warm, humid environment where palmetto bugs, which is like the very polite southern way of saying cockroach, um, they just absolutely thrived. They loved it there. It was not unusual to see cockroaches like running along a storm drain or like behind a dumpster in broad daylight. Um, but it was kind of unusual when my family started to see them in our house, like between couch cushions or like underneath plates in the cupboards, um, just like anywhere that you don't want to see a palmetto bug. Um, and when we did notice, it's funny because we absolutely did not come up with like a plan for how to get rid of them or really strategize at all. Um, what we did instead was to begin this kind of horrible, strange choreography that one adopts when you're learning to live with something that no one wants to acknowledge. Um, I call it the roach dance. Uh, so the roach dance went a little bit like this. Um, someone would spot a cockroach, and when they did, that person would jump up from their place on the couch and grab a shoe. This was kind of a cue for the other two people uh, to know that they needed to jump up from the couch and also grab their weapons. Um, so after that would happen, uh, you would grab like a broom or a spray bottle of chemical cleaner, or if you were my brother, you would grab a literal fucking paper towel. <laughs> a paper towel. I am still haunted by the idea of my human fingers touching a roach through only the thin layer of a paper towel. <laughs> Let it haunt your dreams, people. <laughs> it will never go away. 
Um, so I obviously did not do that. Um, yeah, <laughs> I feel bad because I missed my favorite part of that joke is that I call them the, um, like, uh, a suit of armor body because holy shit, have you ever seen a roach before? It looks like a little suit of armor, <laughs> like, just coming to destroy you. Um, so anyway, uh, <laughs> once we had our weapons, um, just, just picture this, right? Like, I'm hunched over. I've got two shoes on both of my hands. I'm ready to literally slap a roach to its imminent death. Um, my mom is clutching a broom, like, in the scared way that Scooby-Doo does when they find him in a closet in a mansion. Um, and then my brother is holding a fucking paper towel. Like, I don't even think I can imagine anything that's more, like, fragile masculinity. Um, so we're all there, prepped, ready, and on someone's count we would strike, which pretty much meant that I would get scared, drop both shoes, my mom would knock the roach with a broom um, onto the ground, and then my brother, yelling expletives, would use his fucking hand to break the roach's body in front of us. So anyway, this went on for a long time, and I want to emphasize that it was not planned. One day it just kind of happened. We realized that we were coordinating in this like very strategic way, and it went on like this for years. Um, we worked together to annihilate the roaches one by one every time they appeared, simultaneously refusing to acknowledge or allow that there might be a larger problem. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it took me many years to see that this impromptu choreography mirrored the way that my family responded to the first symptoms of my mental illness. Um, like the roaches, these symptoms appeared as if out of nowhere, like bugs hiding in the dark of our family home. At a moment's notice, they would appear. Uh, compulsive thoughts, often about killing myself. Uh, loss of interest in things that I loved, like school or finishing a book. Um, irritation that I absolutely could not control. And sadness that I did a terrible job of hiding. Each one would reveal themselves to us, to me and my family, and the choreography would begin, except instead of shoes or brooms, of course, they struck with excuses or suggestions. The first time I asked my mom if she thought I might have bipolar disorder, um, I could hear her sighing over the phone. Chelsea, that is a very serious disorder. You don't have that. You're very anxious. Why don't you take up jogging? Um, <laughs> my brother told me that I was selfish and a bitch. Um, they conflated my symptoms with traits because that made them easier to eradicate or dismiss. When I finally moved away from home, mental illness and the roaches followed me. After six months in my first apartment, I began to notice small brown seeds showing up. Um, I thought that these seeds were like literally part of some sort of like pollination in Georgia that I didn't understand um, until a few months later when I realized that they were cockroach eggs. They were eggs. Cockroaches lay eggs. <laughs> Um, and I'm not going to tell you how I figured that out, but I will say that it was not Google. <laughs> um, so here I am in my first apartment, surrounded by, like, fledgling baby cockroaches, um, doing the dance alone, the cockroach dance, uh, with one spray bottle of Windex, one set of hands, and I realized that it wasn't working. <laughs> um, like my symptoms, the eggs were growing, changing, taking over, running out of places to hide. I left that apartment and I moved to Chicago, where there were no roaches and no dance. I figured in some way I'd left both problems behind. I thought I'd been cured. <laughs> um, I kept trying to kill the parts of me that made my life more difficult, that made relationships more difficult, uh, and I chased after them with the same excuses that my family used. 
Until one day, uh, the excuses stopped working and I didn't have any more weapons. On February 27, 2017, I admitted myself to the ER at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. When you check yourself into an ER, um, the floor nurse makes you tell her the symptoms that you have in front of an entire room of people. Uh, so somewhere on a hospital form next to my name, it says suicidal ideation, which is like a fun little uh, way to say what I actually said to them, which was, yeah, I don't know. I can't stop thinking about killing myself and have for the last four days. Um, <laughs> I was admitted to the inpatient psychiatric wing after a 20 minute conversation with the ER psychiatrist um, who in 20 minutes diagnosed me with bipolar one, bipolar one. For seven days, without a phone or laces in my shoes, I was forced to face these symptoms that I'd spent years avoiding, and my diagnosis. Bipolar 1 is a mood disorder. It's characterized by alternating periods of deep, deep depression and mania, um, which is a period of activity in most cases, or in my case, a kind of anxious agitation. So, like, I don't even get the cool kind, right? Because, like, mania is when you get to, like, write a book in, like, five minutes. My mania was, like, I get mad at my dog. <laughs> Very not chill. Um, but bipolar one and but the bipolar spectrum um, is a chemical medical problem. It's a medical problem. It's a chronic illness. Um, it's not a failing, it's not a weakness, and it's not something to be ignored or fixed with jogging. If you learn to manage it, in time you can learn to live with it. Uh, I've been taking pills for 18 days, and I do feel better. Um, I haven't told my family about my stay in the hospital, and I probably never will. Oh man, thank you so much for sharing that. What a wonderful first time. We love first time storytellers here. If you have never told a story in a live setting and you want to, uh, email yourstoriesatnerdalogs.com. We'd love to have you at our next show, which I will plug later. But right now we have one more storyteller, one, the other founder in the room of International Tom Hanks Day. Let's hear from Kevin Turk. Storytellers a stretch. Um, so I relate probably most to the Catch Me If You Can Tom Hanks character because all of my friends, like Chris and Kellen, they're funny people. Like, and they stick me as the business, you know, like you do this. And I'm like, I got you guys. Like, I'll keep our book straight. I'll keep all this thing. We're, we'll, we'll succeed at this. All right. Um, so that being said, I'm really here just to plug Tom Hanks Day. So Tom Hanks Day is April 1st at Lincoln Hall. Absolutely. If you want to come out, you should. If you don't want to come out, you still should because it's a lot of fun. Uh, we start around noon. We go till four-ish. Um, we got tons of raffle stuff. So like, you know, um, over the years, for those that don't know anything about the story of Tom Hanks and Tom Hanks Day... Uh, he actually knows about it, so he sends us stuff, so we raffle things off, I think. I don't know. I thought I you won bring, this. I, I, I didn't, it's a large poster. Yeah, okay. I didn't bring it. So, it's one of the things I left at home. <laughs> one of the luckies to win, but so we always raffle these items off. We do all these sort of fun things. Um, and then but the money does actually go to a great cause. So we support an organization called Lifeline Energy, which myself and Kellen, who sadly couldn't be here, um, we're able to travel with the CEO of Lifeline Energy to Zambia, Africa with her to see where some of the money we donated went to. Um, and it was absolutely the most life-changing moment 
to walk around and see you. They basically create these little radios that are crank-powered and solar-powered because uh, they don't have a lot of uh, electricity there. Um, and so these radios were used to share content and educational content around all these communities. And so we were able and welcomed in with open arms to come like experience this. And they would sing and dance with us. And it was, I mean, if you ever get a chance, go to Zambia. It's fantastic. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to keep it really short and sweet. Like I said, I relate to the Tom Hanks character from uh, uh, Catch Me If You Can. I have one joke for you guys because I know this is a comedy show. <laughs> I do that in air quotes even though on the radio you can't see it. Uh, so um, if you want to hear me tell a joke, knock, knock. Who's there? Go fuck yourselves. <laughs> Uh, if I may follow up with that very briefly, yeah, guys, go to International Tom Hanks Day. It's super great. It's Saturday, April 1st at Lincoln Hall. Also, if you, uh, what do you know off the handle website for Lifeline Energy? Uh, LifelineEnergy.org. LifelineEnergy.org. Uh, if you guys are feeling charitable, maybe toss them some money. I'm going to do that after the show tonight. I'm trying to be more philanthropic this year because, uh, you know what? We, this is the first show since November... Eighth, ninth? That no one mentioned Donald Trump, and I'm gonna do it right now. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but the world outside is really horrible, and I'm trying my best to try to counteract that this year. So I'm trying to be more philanthropic. So I'm gonna make a donation if you guys feel like it. Um, please do that. That would be super great. Um, uh, this next song is from somebody I consider to be a queen, so I'm very nervous to play it because I'm also playing the piano, which I'm always very nervous to play, and I'm not going to not say it, Eric, because it scares the <laughs> shit out of me. And um, She's Eric, been doing great, though. Eric, you <laughs> What? Uh, this next song is by a living queen named Jenny Lewis, who I also saw... Uh, yeah, uh, living queen, and once I was in the same room with her, and I didn't talk to her because I was nervous. Uh, <laughs> Katie, Katie was like, "I'm gonna play it cool by not saying anything to her, <laughs> looking at her." I was like, "Katie, that's too cool. That's too cool." Yeah, it was the worst. I've been, it's the worst I've ever been. <laughs> The, the lesson of that story is being cool sucks, guys. Don't be cool. Just be, be yourself. Be a nerd. Yeah, nerd logs. Talk to Jenny Lewis and weird her out. I would have definitely weirded her out. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> she weirds us out. She does not weird us out. No, you quite. do. No, yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so nervous. She's a queen. Okay. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> By the time I got your letter... I lost my mind I was tripping When you get better It's a jagged line Nothing lasts forever When you treble time I've been sipping The Kool-Aid of a cosmos Cause the voyagers in every
Let's drink now. Let's get wasted. And then go to my epic and not be annoying. <laughs> They're open late. This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash nerdalogs to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.